0: Good morning. We are in James chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12 this morning. We got this week and one more week and we'll finish James. And we're getting ready to, in the new year, we'll start a series on Mark, which will take us even longer than James took. And you guys are going to be so excited. You're just going to be tickled. And we're going to look at Mark's gospel, the first gospel written most scholars believe, dictated by Peter to John Mark, who was kind of operating as his secretary. All right, James chapter five. Father, in Jesus' name, we love you. We adore you. We celebrate you this morning. We say in this house, there's nothing sweeter than the blood of Jesus. There's nothing more precious to us than the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need all of you. We need more of you, Lord. Let the fire of God be so present and tangible in this room today. Lord, as we leave this place, we want to leave with a fresh filling, with a fresh commitment, a fresh zeal for the gospel. It's in Jesus' most holy name we pray. And all God's people said amen. 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 Now, we've spent several months working through the epistle that James wrote. James being the half-brother of Jesus, I think most likely the, the next born after Jesus Um, James was leading the church in Jerusalem. Remember, we went over all of this. He's writing um, to a very Jewish church. Most scholars think he's probably writing to the church at Jerusalem. And there were some very close surrounding cities that he was probably writing to those churches as well. Who would have been familiar with him, but it wasn't um, as convenient to get to Jerusalem to hear James preach. So we've talked some about the literary structure of James, some believing that it's written as wisdom literature, some calling James essentially a book like Proverbs, and we've said that it's definitely got a wisdom literature style, but it's not quite wisdom literature. It feels more like a homily or a sermon. Now, remember, we talked about Luther and his relationship with the book of James. Martin Luther was so, Protestant Reformation, right? 16th century. Martin Luther was so um, enamored with Pauline literature, with Paul, he was obsessed uh with paul and particularly the book of romans changed martin luther's life now when you think of romans we're talking about soteriology or the study of salvation the order of salvation that's that the technical word is soteriology and and paul in in paul's literature in paul's writing he thinks a lot about soteriology he talks a lot about um justification by faith alone, Paul's going to talk a lot about glorification and that the saints one day will rise again with Christ, be given new bodies, the exalted. It's Paul who's going to say, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places So in Pauline literature, you get a lot about soteriology, you get a lot about the glory of Christ, and you kind of get this heavenly perspective of what it means to now be sons and daughters of the living God on the basis of the blood of Jesus and the adoption granted to us by the cross. Now, all of that's very beautiful. And again, Luther is fascinated by it, loves it. It comes alive in Pauline literature. And so, Luther is quoted as saying, we talked about this before, Luther called the, the Epistle of James an Epistle of Straw. Now, some, some have taken, taken that statement to mean that Luther thought that the Epistle of James should not be canonical, or that the Epistle of James should not be included in the Scriptures. Now, that's not what Luther was trying to say, but what Luther was trying to say is that compared to Paul, um, James James doesn't take you to the heights of theology or the depths of God's love. And to Luther, he wasn't really that interested in the epistle of James. Now, John Calvin, who was uh, Luther's kind of counterpart in the Reformation, a little later, but led as much. John Calvin had a little better perspective on the book of James. And, and Calvin said this. He said, James seems more sparing in proclaiming the g- grace of Christ. In other words, Calvin says, yes. James is not quick to declare the grace that we received in Jesus or, or to talk about soteriology. And then Calvin goes on, but it is not surely required of all to handle the same arguments. Now, so Luther says, I'm not really that fascinated with the epistle of James because it doesn't deal with salvation, with grace, with faith, with, with glorification. And then Calvin kind of corrects Luther a little bit and says, well, uh, certainly the book of James does not talk about grace and, and glorification, but James is not required to handle the same arguments that Paul handled. In other words, Calvin is saying, James is just as inspired, filled, led by the Spirit. His hand, as he writes, he's breathed on by the Holy Ghost, but the Holy Spirit is not required or requiring of James that he write on the same topics that Paul took up his pen to write upon. You with me so far? So if, if we agree with Calvin, and I think we should, that James is not required to handle the same topics that Paul handled in Pauline literature, or even that John handled in, in the Johannine structures, then we, we must ask the question, well, what then is James handling? Now, we've been talking about the book of James now for months, and so it's about time that we ask that question and bring an answer to it. If he's not trying to handle soteriology or the idea of salvation... We've talked to some about eschatology, where Thessalonians will deal with eschatology, the study of the end. James has talked some about the end, the end times, but mostly James is concerned with this. James is saying, I'm, I'm not trying to talk to you about what happened to you at salvation. I'm not trying to talk to you about what happened at the cross or the beauty thereof. I'm not even trying to talk to you about what will happen at the end, James is saying, I'm talking to you about what it means to be a spirit-filled people now. You are a people of the spirit today. And how then should you live dependent upon the spirit today? And in that sense, James feels very practical and people don't like practical. Um, James feels like he's focused on uh, putting skin on the theology. But but just follow me here. Let me just make a few arguments and we'll work towards our text, okay? Let's look at some passage of scripture. I just want to jog your memory. James 1.19, James said this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James one twenty six, he said this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James 3.6, he said this, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And today, from our text, he'll say this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, from that quick skim, and leading us into our passage today, we've seen that James from start to finish in his epistle is concerned with your tongue. Now, now some of you in the room have been walking with Jesus for 50 years and some of you've been walking with Jesus for two years. Um, but if you remember when you first get saved, one of the first things you try to do is you try to quit cussing. Some of you are like, Oh, we're not allowed to cuss. No, please quit. You quit cussing. Okay. Stop. Um, and you know when you first get saved, it's like, it's, it's, you're very much trying to clean up the outer things of your life. Um, your profanity, or you're trying to get mm, lust under control, or maybe alcoholism was a thing, and you need to get that under control. And, and I want to say that cleaning up profanity is the easy work. Okay, what James is after here is not just being a people who say, we don't cuss like the sailors. But James is after us being a people who refuse to allow our hearts to engage in belittling our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how offended you are. And now as a saint, some of you guys are with me, you've been walking with God for 30 years and profanity is not a problem in your life. But you get offended, then you're in a small group and someone just kind of pokes you the wrong way and stuff starts to rise up in your heart. Now James is concerned with that moment, with you guarding your tongue and reminding your heart that you are a person of the spirit in the presence of the spirit and what you speak will either honor the presence of the spirit or will grieve his heart. Now, James is concerned, I think, with the church learning to live as a people, very aware that we live in the midst of God's glory and we don't wanna squelch his fire. Now, let's just keep kind of moving. Again, James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast, uh, steadfastness. Count, count it joy when you face trials. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James five eight. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And from our text today, James 5.13 is any among you suffering let him pray. So so now what we've seen is that James is also concerned with a people who suffer. So on one hand he's saying live holy very aware of God's divine glory through the presence of the person of the spirit in your midst live aware of the fire. Then on the other hand he's saying while you wait for the return of Christ you will suffer Make sure that you suffer by and with the strength of the Holy Spirit. Sure up your heart. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Don't shake, don't quiver in your boots. Don't quit. Suffer on the basis of God's power in you, church. Again, the, the theme there is realizing that we don't walk through fire by the strength of our own flesh, or even by the strength of our own discipline. We walk through fire drinking from the well of the Spirit. Maybe today there's there's a a financial problem in your life. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe there's even a sickness and you're believing for healing and it's fire right now. You do not lean on the strength of your arm and the strength of your discipline. Learn to pray. Learn to pray. And that leads us to our next section here, James one five. think with me again. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. When you need wisdom, ask God. James 4.2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And from our text today in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You probably memorized the King James, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Here we find James particularly concerned with the church learning to pray. Bring your petitions in faith. Call on God daily, consistently, with fervor. Now, again, if I could add my commentary to the text here. The, the the heart, the ethos of the epistle, the culture of the epistle, is 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 not again soteriology. I'm talking talking about salvation. Not even trying to talk about the end of of all. It's trying to say to you, you have the very person of the Holy Spirit in your midst. Live holy. Don't grieve him. Lean not on the strength of your arm, but on the strength of the Spirit. And when you suffer, when you're in lack, when you're in need, pray. As if the power of the Holy Spirit is available to you today. Now, if you nailed me down and you said, Caleb, what does this feel like to you? This feels a little to me like the holiness movement. This feels a little bit like Tozer. It feels a little bit like um, Ian Bounds or these movements in church history where the church began to focus on holiness and power. And the relationship between. And I think this is what James is focusing on. Holiness. Word your tongue. Honor the presence of the Spirit. Prayer. Cry out to God for release of power in your midst. there been great movements in church history where the church has honed on these things. And I think there's great fruit in it. I think this is what James wants us to be. A people of holiness, prayer, and power. Now, Let's read the text today, and I'll do my best just to unravel for us what I think James is trying to do as he's kind of on his descent now. Okay, we're getting close to the end of the epistle, and he's beginning to bring to us some structure, some concluding thoughts. James 5, starting in verse 12. Thank you, Brad. Sorry, y'all, that weather change has got me messed up. You think I need that much? What's wrong with you? <laughs> that, You know, we had the warm days and then the cold and then the it's got me messed up. James 5, starting in verse 12. You guys with me? But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. First, have no need to swear. Let your speech be matter of fact. Be be truthful be honest, have such integrity about you that when you make a promise to your employer or to a customer or to even a neighbor that you're gonna show up at a certain time and complete a certain task that they have no need to ask you to promise or for an oath. You should never hear as a believer, you should never hear your boss say, oh, that's what you said last time. Your yes should be yes and your no should be no. Now at this point, James is almost verbatim quoting Jesus. And for good reason, right? This is from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five thirty-seven. Again, you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take any oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything other comes from evil. Many in this day were mincing words. They were. Do you remember from the from the Gospels? They were saying things like, "I swear by the temple," but if you don't swear by the gold on the altar of the temple, then that oath is not as binding as an oath would be if you swore by the altar on the uh, gold on the altar. James and and Jesus alike are saying that is fundamentally evil. When you speak, church you speak in the presence of God. When you speak, you speak in the very presence of the Holy Ghost. Do not make a habit of swearing on the basis of God's name. Don't, you make sure, and I think this is something we should probably talk about a bit. Church, make sure you honor God's name in your home. Don't, make make sure you're not, I swear to God, every time you're trying to make a point. When we pray, hallowed be your name. We are praying, let there be a great reverence and a great adoring, a great cherishing of the name of God in our region, in our lives, in our children's life. Let your name be precious to us. It is not a tool to be used to sure up our promises that we are so fickle and unwilling to fulfill. Honor his name. And let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you said it, you said it in the presence of God. Fulfill it, period. Again, do you kind of feel James's heart? He's concerned with holiness here. He's concerned with making sure that you honor what falls from your mouth because God heard it. Remember last week we studied it as as James said, the judge is standing at the door ready to quickly return and hearing everything that happens inside. James says again, as he kind of descends, guard your speech, guard your speech. Next, he moves to suffering again. We've talked about suffering a lot. And the first thing is he says, is any among you suffering? Now the Greek here, there's a delineation between suffering and sickness in the language. So he doesn't intend for you to read. Is any among you suffering? And to jump or to skip over and get straight to the place where he says, "Is any among you sick?" Those are two separate thoughts that he has in mind. When he says suffering, that Greek there literally could be translated, and most of the time is translated, uh, "Is any among you experiencing misfortune?" Or um, or are you are you experiencing persecution? misfortune could be, are there any among you experiencing real financial hardship? Are there there any among you persecuted for your faith? You're not getting a promotion or you're being sued on the matter of your faith. Or even a misfortune could be you had some kind of crazy accident that insurance didn't cover and all of your money's gone in a a lawsuit. Are, Are any among you, you facing trials Hardships right now. If so, James says, pray. Pray. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way. Listen to Paul. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, perplexed meaning sometimes Not confused, but wondering what to do, but never driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So James is saying, if you're experiencing misfortune, if you're suffering, if you're persecuted, don't break. Bend. Be pressed. Be willing in your Christian life to be pressed. Okay? The Christian life, again, is not the life that says, I should never have any kind of hardship. God's promise to me is not total and perfect comfort comfort forever. God's promises to me are that in the midst of pressing, I will not be crushed because I have access to prayer. What is the key to bending and not breaking? Prayer. Prayer. Many, when they're pressed in this life, you can see this in the scriptures, Paul will come after many, will, will claim Christ until it's no longer convenient. Then they will abandon the faith and say, well, if God was sure, he wouldn't have allowed me to be pressed. No. The scriptural command is be pressed not crushed. Be persecuted. The world will hate you. Remember, it hated me first, Jesus said. There are going to be times in your life where you are hated. What do you do? James says, the secret to persevering through suffering is prayer. Is put your face in the carpet and say, oh, Holy Ghost, fill me again. I won't let you go until you bless me with strength, with power. The Christian life, the church that's prayerless is weak and frail. What's wrong with the Western church? Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. So here, just just watch. Just, man, go with me. He is saying In seasons of suffering, let fellowship with the Holy Spirit in prayer be chief and supreme in your life. And that fellowship with the Spirit in the secret place of prayer will be a divine strength to you that will cause you to soar even in seasons of pressing. Again, you catch the nuanced theme, fellowship with the Spirit in every season. Now, so he told us, are any among you suffering, facing misfortune or persecution? You should pray. Are any among you glad? You should thank God in praise. You should sing songs of praise. And then he turns to sickness. Are any among you sick? Now let's take a few minutes to unpack this section here. Let the sick come to the elders and the elders will anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and pray the prayer of faith, and they shall be healed. Now, this is a command. This is not a a practice that the church gets to ignore on the basis of convenience or cultural relevance. I think it's even sacramental in nature. God's saying, when you're sick, when you're really suffering, come to the elders of the church and have them anoint you with oil. Now, some will say that oil has... Medicinal properties in in ancient culture, and it, and it seems to at times. And they'll say oil has medicinal properties. Therefore, what the text is saying is that the elders should should allow you to come before them, and the elders should. I'm being a little bit crass. It's not this crass the teaching, but the elders should give you a Tylenol and then pray for you. The elders should be willing to embrace natural medicine and s- spiritual healing. Um, that's just silly. Okay, the, if, there's nothing anti-biblical about going to the doctor. If you need natural medicinal care, our elders here would say, go to the doctor. There's nowhere in scripture where the text puts on the elders the responsibility of medicinal care. I think that doctors are a gift from God. I think there are, are many doctors who love Jesus and serve the broken out of a divine care and responsibility before the Lord. There's there's nothing wrong with seeing a doctor. I don't think that we should put all of our eggs in that basket and ignore the command of scripture, which says, when you're sick, come and receive prayer. I think maybe the gift of God is that you got multiple avenues here to work with, but don't ignore prayer. And so by saying anoint with oil, the text does not mean, emphatically, does not mean that oil has medicinal properties and that we should rub a little frankincense on your tumor to see what happens. Um, that teaching is what I would call stupid, okay? The anointing of oil in the Old Testament was always a sign of consecration, of setting someone apart. And asking God, as we mark them with the oil, asking God to pour his spirit out on that person. In that sense, it is sacramental. It's a a moment we come before God. The elders of a congregation come before God, lay hands on in the name of Jesus, and ask for the spirit to come and supernaturally heal. This is a practice that we practice, and we want to continue to practice. Now, from there, the text does not limit praying for the sick solely to the elders of a congregation, I think James really wants you to see that, that the elders coming together and pray is a biblical command, it's healthy, it is good, but the text does not say, if you're not an elder, you shouldn't pray for the sick. Because he's going to turn and begin to teach that, that all in the congregation can and should pray. And he does so by bringing up Elijah. Now Elijah is a prophet, obviously, but not an elder in a congregation. And what he says about Elijah um, is that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now I've taught this in, like thoroughly over the years. So you've, if you've listened to me at all, you probably heard me talk about this at some point or another. James, to me, is a a wonderfully convicted man. He's called James the righteous, James the just, even by people that hate him in in, in early literature. They say that I don't like him, I don't like his teaching, but that man means what he says and says what he means. Um, so James the Just or James the righteous, remember he was he was martyred because they threw him off the, the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. Well what history says is that the young men came by to rub his knees and to rub his elbows after he passed as his body, his corpse is laying there. They wanted to touch his knees and elbows because his knees and elbows were so deformed um that they called him Camel Knee James. Because he spent so much time, like a camel, on his knees and elbows that they were calloused. They were deformed. And so, when, when you carry that historical fact in mind, when James says, Elijah was a man like us, and he prayed, James is not just giving you a nice statement to put on your refrigerator. James believes this so much that his physical body is broken over this truth. You, you hear what I'm trying to say? When, when James says something, he means what he says. So, so James believed that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, meaning there was nothing in Elijah inherently different than you. Elijah wasn't the super spiritual or the super anointed. He wasn't half man, half angel. He's just a man. But Elijah found power in, in prayer, though, not in and of himself. Elijah found power in prayer. So Elijah prayed that it might not rain, and for, for three years and six months, it did not rain. And then Elijah decided that he was ready to pray for rain again. And so he did. And he prayed for rain and God gave rain. And the heavens opened, poured forth rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, you remember the story. Elijah, just a few chapters later, is going to be laying on the ground and crying for God to kill him. Because he's facing extreme depression. And he's getting to the place of suicidal breaks in his, in his, in his brain. Can't think of that word. And so so if Elijah faces depression and anxiety and frustration just like you but when Elijah prays God stops the rain and makes the rain come again James is saying to the church your role your your sense of status in the community your 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 level of authority in the in the church or lack of authority in the church none of these things hinder your fruitfulness in prayer. But the only thing that makes prayer effective, hear me say this, effective, in James' mind, is this. Fervency, the fervent prayer, that means you're not the kind of person that prays in the foxhole and handles things on your own strength every other day. Fervency means you have a relationship with God in the place of prayer day in and day out. That's the kind of people God's calling you to be, to fervently pray. So fervency and righteousness produce an effective prayer life. So so watch what we just found again. We just found um, a consistent leaning on the Spirit in prayer and a, a holiness that's aware of the Spirit's presence in your midst and refuses to grieve Him. And that that dependence on the Spirit's power in prayer, yoked with a pursuit of holiness, produces effective prayer. Power that stops up the heavens. Power that opens up the heavens. So James is now saying, there are sick people among you, bring them forth, let them pray. Remember he says again, um, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. And so we do see that that some sickness, certainly not all, not all sickness, but certainly some sickness is related to direct disobedience. And James says, Confess your sin to one another so that you might be healed. And then he says, And remember that effective, powerful prayer has two prequalifiers. Two prequalifiers for effective, powerful prayer life. And it's not super spiritual, it's not the most intellectually gifted person in the room. And by God, it's not charisma the two qualifiers, fervency in prayer and a commitment to holiness. And these things produce a prayer life that is effective, that availeth much, has great power and it's working. Now, that's good preaching. And you just do what you're gonna do, but I'm gonna enjoy it, all right? <laughs> Don't clap, I'm just teasing. So let's just unwind here so so luther says of james it's an epistle of straw it's um, luther saying i'm not saying that it's not canonical i'm just saying that it's not as glorious as pauline literature and calvin says well it might not take you to the heights of grace and focus on the glories of the cross but it's not required to so then we're left to ask the question well what is james doing what are the arguments that james is making what is james trying to produce in us And and I think here, I'm reminded here of A.W. Tozer, a man of great prayer. And he would go upstairs in his church to pray. And he changed his pants, put on some sweatpants to pray, because he didn't want to wear holes in his trousers. God is asking us to be the kind of people who have praying pants. (laughs) When you study people of prayer, and I guess if I've read anything, I've read people of prayer... I've prayed for years now and go, God, make me a man of prayer. I'm going to be a man of prayer more than anything, more than I want to be a scholar or, or gifted in any, any way. I've asked God, make me a man of prayer. When you study a man of prayer, you are, in, you are without a shadow of a doubt going to be studying simultaneously a man who pursues holiness. These, th- these two things are always yoked together. Holiness, an awareness of God's spirit in your midst and a commitment to not grieve that presence, to host his presence well, to steward the fire of God well. And then fervency and prayer. Fervency, a commitment to prayer. The undergirding of James's work, I think, is this. Live as if God is with you. Honor him with your speech, honor him by caring for the poor. Remember how many times James told us that? Like the Spirit is annoyed, grieved, frustrated when his people live in abundance and ignore the poor. Honor the spirit and the way that you treat the poor. Honor him with your oaths. Access his power when you suffer, when you struggle, when you're pressed. And pray when you're sick. Pray when you lack wisdom. Pray when you lack strength. Be patient and gird yourself up in the place of prayer. Overarchingly, I think that's what James' thematic purposes are. Be aware of the Spirit's presence in your midst. Fire and drink from it. Lean on it. Now, worship team, if you come.